to change us, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. We pray these things in the precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the righteous one. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. It says, speaking of Jesus, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. It came to me as a real shock many years ago. I was talking with a, a gentleman, a Jewish rabbi that I had made friends with. Uh, I, I say made friends with, I mean con communicated with him over a period of time. He was in New York City for most of the time that I knew him. Later when his wife died, he went to, uh, he started splitting his time between Jerusalem and New York City. Never met him, but uh, I talked with him numerous times it was kind of a freak thing that uh, how we met and again me, we met over the phone but we kind of took to each other and uh, I learned a lot of things about Judaism I learned a lot of things about how the Jews uh, uh, approached things what their attitudes were how they differed uh, from Christian attitudes and so forth so it came as a real shock to me when he called me into question about spiritual things. What I mean by that is we would talk about things and I would approach things from a spiritual angle and he couldn't relate to that. And he asked me a question, why do I always talk about spiritual things or talk about heavenly things? Well, I thought that's what you're supposed to do. But he pointed out to me that Judaism really doesn't deal much with spiritual things. There's not too much knowledge among the Jews about the spirit realm. When I examined that, I realized everything God dealt with Abraham about was natural. He promised him that he'd make him rich. We know that the blessing of Abraham contains healing for the physical body. And his Judaism just doesn't make a whole lot of room for spiritual things or the spirit realm. And as such, you may remember there were several times where people would come to Jesus when he was in his earthly ministry and ask if this is the time that he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth. The Jews don't look for the rapture. They don't consider it a part of anything that God promised Abraham, and therefore it doesn't belong to them. They don't look at things from a spiritual context the same way that we do. There are very few scriptures in the Old Testament that really deal with spiritual things in their opinion or in their estimation. One of the exceptions 
would be Ezekiel chapter 36. In verse 26, God said, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. The Jews don't take that literally. They don't look at it as God giving you a new spirit because they don't accept or uh, understand the new birth as the means whereby you come to God. They still look at the old covenant, the law of Moses, and the keeping of the law of Moses that brings them into good standing with God. Now the reason that I'm pointing some of this out, and, and please understand, I'm oversimplifying this tremendously. I'm sure there would be some Orthodox Jews that could shred my argument or my position apart with Old Testament scriptures about spiritual things. But they still don't judge spiritual things to be necessary. It's all of a, a physical act of obedience to keep the law of Moses. That's all there. Uh, that's the underpinnings of everything that they believe and stand for. So I realize that I'm oversimplifying this, but the purpose for bringing this to your attention is that I want you to think about the Apostle Paul for a bit. We know Paul's salvation experience. He was on the road to Damascus. He had participated in the stoning of Stephen in Jerusalem, bringing about his death. He was certainly in agreement with it. The Bible says that he had put other people in prison for their belief and their stand in, uh, in uh, accepting Jesus as the fulfillment of the law of Moses. He was carrying letters of authority from the Sanhedrin on his way to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him. Now, folks, instantly Paul became aware of the spirit realm. We read the story of his conversion, and I think we probably all approached it from the standpoint of what would it be like for us if that had happened to us, how would we have responded or whatever. But Paul instantly came in contact with Jesus who he knew very well from the teaching of the church, teaching of the church in Jerusalem, how that he had been crucified and raised again from the dead. He was willing to kill people that believed that, for that belief. And now all of a sudden he comes face to face with Jesus. No question anymore about whether or not he's dead or alive. Anything that Paul had thought about the church and the church teachings up to that point. His positions, his opinions, his beliefs are shattered. Because Jesus, the one that he's persecuting and the belief in the ones that he's willing to put in jail. All those things are irrevocably reversed in his life. 
Paul gave us some wonderful truths about spiritual things. He's the one that identified in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 that man is a three-part being. He is a spirit being. He has a soul and he lives in a body. He's the one that tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 if any man be in Christ, he's a new cre creation. King James said, translates it as creature. One translation translates it as a new species of being. I like that. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things become new. But I want you to look with me in Romans chapter 7. And I want you to see what Paul came to the understanding of. We'll start in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's establishing a, a difference between the keeping of the law and believing in Jesus through faith. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. How does Paul know that? How does he come to the understanding that he was alive spiritually until the, the, the law came and convicted him of his failure to keep it, his inability to keep it? And that brought about spiritual death. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Notice the deception that he identifies here, the deception that's in the world. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that do I. He's talking about the inability to control his flesh. If I then do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, 
Who shall deliver me from this bo the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul is fighting for his righteousness. Paul comes to the place where he recognizes the difference between what he, the spirit man, on the inside wants to do as opposed to what the man on the outside, the outward man, wants to do. He recognizes. Now keep in mind that Paul has the same teaching as the high priest. He has undergone the same he apparently came from a prominent family. And he has the same teaching and the same understandings that the high priest would have. He knows in the Old Testament that Isaiah prophesied that Jesus, our Savior, would be our righteousness. So he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life is irreversibly changed. Instantly, everything that he was opposed to, he's now in favor of regarding Christianity. So Paul comes to the same place that I believe we all come to the difference between what the Bible says about us and who the Bible declares that we are and the way that we live our lives. The absence of power in the flesh to overcome wrongdoing. The inability to cease from sin. Now what most people do, most people in the, in the body of Christ today, and it's probably been this way since Jesus was raised from the dead. Most people come to the, to the realization that they're not living out who the Bible says they are. Come to recognize that there is no physical strength or power that contain the body and curb the body from operating in sin. But the difference in Paul and most people do is most people just give up right there. And part of the reason they give up is because by giving up, they don't have to deal with the voice of their spirit, which is the conscience and the condemnation of the devil that he brings against them in a constant accusation of their responsibility and operation in sin. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't give up. Paul doesn't just say, well, I'm not sure how this works. We believe the word of God to be true, and the word of God says our righteousness is of God. But we all know that we can't live up to that, so we'll just move on to other things. Paul fights for his righteousness. He knows the word is true. He knows that the Messiah was prophesied specifically not only to forgive sin 
but to change our spiritual nature. And Paul comes to the realization and shares that realization with us of what faith in Jesus Christ really is about. Look in chapter 8. He's just concluded in chapter 7 his inability to live up to what the Bible says he is, what the Old Testament scriptures declare that Jesus would do for him. So he knows the word is true. He knows the Old Testament scripture are true. But how does he live them in his life? He's looking for somebody to save him from his inability and weakness in the flesh. Who's going to save him from that? Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That last phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, is not in the, trans the original translation. This is one of the times in the scriptures, and there, there are only a few, but this is one of the times, probably the, the most obvious, where the translators absolutely gave up on what the scripture was saying. Now this phrase, you walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, is further down in the scripture, the original scripture. It's in, in verse uh, four of this same eighth chapter. But there is nothing in the original transcripts that even approximates what the translators put in here. And notice it's not even in italics. Most of the time in italics, any word that's in italics, the translators added it. It's not there, but they added something for the purpose of us gaining greater understanding of what the scripture is saying. But this is something they just put in there on their own. And it must be, it certainly turns out to be, but it must be the fact that they could not accept what Paul had found to be true. They could not accept the victory that Paul found that gave him the strength, the spiritual strength to overcome his flesh. He simply says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now folks, Paul's got a lot of things to feel condemned about. Stephen, who he participated in and uh, agreed with his, his death by stoning. There are still people in prison at the time that Paul writes these things, at the time that Paul is converted, certainly, but there are people that are left in prison that he had something to do with putting them there. I wonder what the devil would be doing to us if it was, if it was us in that situation. Can you imagine the thoughts that would come to his mind, the thoughts that would be planted in his mind by the devil concerning the things that he did and the impact that it had 
on the people that he imprisoned. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For the law, what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There's the passage that they added into verse 1. But it's only in verse 4. Now one of the things that Paul equates his gaining victory over his flesh, the sinfulness in his flesh, is located in chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Then verse 16 says, The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now folks, there aren't very many things that are more important for us to know than the fact that we are in the family of God. I know that there are some people who through a lack of fellowship with God and through his word struggle with whether or not they're sad, they are really saved. I know the devil works overtime on some people's heads concerning those things. And I have a hard time relating to that because I've never really had any problem with the devil telling me that I wasn't saved. I was there when I got saved. There's not too much room for him to bring doubt to my mind about that. But I'm sure we all know of or have heard of people that struggle with that. But folks, there's an area of deception. Paul talked about the law deceiving him. And what he's talking about is a lack of understanding of who he is and what belongs to us. I believe there's never been a more important time for us to be aware of and to rely on the leading of the Holy Ghost in our lives. Because we're watching this world around us turn upside down week after week after week. Jesus gave us some great information on spiritual things in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. This passage of Scripture that we're going to read is considered by many people, maybe most people, as a parable. But it can't be a parable. A parable is something that's like something else. 
For example, there were many occasions where Jesus, teaching by parables, said things like, the kingdom of God is like a man planting seed in the ground. He's talking about the growth process that comes as a result of planting seed in the ground and watering and nurturing and so forth that grows and develops just as the kingdom of God will grow and develop in us as we feed ourselves on the word of God and plant the word of God into the seed of our heart. So a parable is something that stands for something else. It's a comparison that's like something else. Most of the parables contain the word like or is as or something to that effect. But here Jesus said there was a certain rich man. The word certain means surely or first for sure. So he said there was a certain rich man that fared sumptuously every day and was clothed in fine linen. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who was laid daily at his gate full of sores. This can't be a parable. Jesus specifically said there was a certain rich man and a certain beggar named Lazarus. Speaking of Lazarus, he goes on to say, in desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice that Lazarus didn't die when his body gave out. The beggar died and was carried. The beggar died, but the real man on the inside, the spirit of Lazarus, continued to exist. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Both the rich man and Lazarus continued to exist. The Bible says that God created us in his image. Well, the Bible tells us clearly, Jesus said clearly God is a spirit. So by definition of terms, if man is created in the image and likeness of God, and God is a spirit, then man has to be a spirit as well. It's the one thing that differentiates and distinguishes man from any other part of creation. Animals are not spirit beings. So they continue to exist, but they're in different places. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. Apparently, until Jesus was raised from the dead, hell, was, uh, hell from beneath was divided into two separate compartments. One was Abraham's bosom where the Old Testament saints, those that were looking for the promise of the Messiah, were kept and reserved until Jesus' resurrection. But the other part of hell is a place of torment. The lower part of hell is a place of torment. 
the rich man was tormented by the flames. Now, folks, I want you to realize, think about this as we read through this. We know they don't have bodies. It tells us specifically that the rich man was buried. It doesn't tell us about Lazarus being buried. We don't know exactly what happened to his body. But we know that neither one of them have physical bodies. They are spirit entities. And there must be some form to them. And the form that there is to them sounds a lot like what their bodies look like. So it says in hell, uh, the rich man lift up his eyes being in torment and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. A lot of times people say, when we get to heaven, are we going to know each other? Well, he knows Lazarus. He recognizes Lazarus. Now the rich man is used to being attended to. And that doesn't change. What I want you to see is, as spirit beings, they still have souls. They no longer live in physical bodies. But they still have souls. Now the Bible identifies and defines the soul as the mind, the will, and the emotions. The mental part of man. The emotional part of man. And the soul is the place where we make up our mind on what we will do. Or what we will have. The exercise of the will is part of the soul. So being in hell, the rich man was in torment. And he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. So these spiritual forms they have have hands and fingers and tongues. These spiritual forms are able to experience in the rich man's case, the torment of the flames. In Lazarus' case, comfort. But Abraham said, son, remember, he must be able to remember. Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and Lazarus the, likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham answered and said, If they heareth not Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. I think we can see Jesus being referred to there as the one rising from the dead. So we see that they have mental faculties in operation. The rich man is able to calculate. He's able to see. He sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus. He's able to remember things back on the earth. He's able to have concern and show concern for his brothers. It sounds like everything's working just the way that it worked when he was here on the earth, just in a different location, and that different location was absent the body. Now in these two compartments of hell, Abraham's bosom, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus led captivity captive. That simply means that he took with him all those that were in Abraham's bosom. You remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, there were two thieves, one on either side of him that were being crucified as well. And one of them mocked Jesus, but the other recognized that Jesus was a just man and there was no reason for him to be crucified. He saw the injustice of the sentence that was passed upon Jesus. So he said, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded and said, I say unto thee this day, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now the punctuation that's used there in that passage of scripture is that Jesus is saying he's going to be in paradise that day. But there's no punctuation there in the original text, original transcripts. And we know that Jesus didn't go to paradise or Abraham's bosom the first day, but that he spent three days in the lowest part of hell paying the price for man's sin. So with that knowledge, we have to translate it this way. Jesus said, unto the, I, Jesus said I say unto thee this day, period. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus is identifying that the actions and the words of the thief when he was on the cross were sufficient to put him in the upper category of hell, the upper chambers of hell. And that when Jesus led captivity captive, that thief on the cross was one of the ones that went with him. So here's what spirit beings are like. The soul is a part of them. Just like the head is part of your body. The, whole, the soul is part of the eternal part of man. Now since we understand that from passages of scripture like this, then it becomes more real to us how important it is for us to renew our mind to the word, present our bodies a living sacrifice and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind is eternal just like your spirit is. 
your soul is eternal, just like your spirit is. But as important as that is, God left it up to us to do. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just pray and all of a sudden our mind would be instantly renewed to the Word of God in every respect? Wouldn't that be great? But that's not the way it works. It's left up to us to do. Folks, I believe that Jesus is coming back soon. And as such, I believe the church should have a voice in this last day world we live in. Now there are things, for example, if you're a fan of football, you know that there's a two minute warning at the end of the game and every team practices all throughout the week, all throughout the season for what they're going to do if they're behind in the last two minutes. Now that two minute warning signals a, pro a progression of plays or downs that football teams put in practice. They'll take greater chances in that last two minutes of the game because they don't have anything to lose. And they're trying to produce a score that will win the game for them. Now, for example, we all know that every team on the last play of the, of the game, if they're behind, are going to throw the ball into the end zone in something that's called a Hail Mary. I assume that it gets the name because they're looking for Mary to answer their prayer. But folks, there's a greater opportunity for a zombie apocalypse than for Mary to answer somebody's prayer. Now, one of the things we know about the end in the two-minute drill for the church is that deception will be a major issue. The Bible talks about deception during the tribulation period. Well, that's easy for us to understand because the church will be taken off of the scene. So it's easy to see that the devil will have free reign in the absence of the church. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he talked to them about how the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, 
would be revealed after the church is gone. But he uses terminology that can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. In fact, I want to turn to that passage of scripture. I think it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. Notice that gathering together unto him is talking about where he gathers us together through what we know of as the rapture. That you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, that that day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That word falling away is the word apostasy. And it's used, frequently used in scripture to talk about people that turn away from the truth. In other words, people that are deceived in wrongly dividing the word. But it also can be used to mean a catching away. Catching away as in the sense of the rapture. Now Paul could have used a specific word either way. There are other words that are available to convey whatever meaning he's trying to convey. Whether he's talking about a, a departure from the truth or he's talking about a departure from the earth. So in my thinking, the fact that he used one word that could be considered or translated either way must mean that both ways are in play. So he says that we should not be deceived by any means for that day Cannot, shall not come except there come a falling away first, the departure. And that man of sin be revealed to the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that which is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. There's something that's holding him back from being revealed. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth or withholdeth, it's the same word as withholdeth in the previous verse. Only he who now is restraining or taking things or keeping things from being revealed will continue until he be taken out of the way. Now this taken out of the way is a reference to the departure. When he's talking about being taken out of the way, he doesn't mean taken away from the truth of the word. He doesn't mean taken away into apostasy. He's talking about being taken away in the rapture. Well, who is it that's raptured? It's the church. So the church is the withholding power that keeps the Antichrist from being revealed. But when the rapture takes place and we're gathered together unto Jesus, then the devil has free reign in course 
and deception will certainly increase. Verse 8, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming, whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceitfulness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Notice that phrase, the love of the truth. Folks, that ought to be one of the greatest characteristics of the church in the last days. A love of the truth. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. So he's talking about deceitfulness before the rapture, but then a, a stronger delusion or a stronger measure of deceitfulness after the church is gone. Paul writes a lot to the church about the last days. And he talks about false, false apostles. He talks about false prophets. He talks about false teachers. Now what is deception? Deception should manifest itself in very many, many ways. More ways than we have time to even consider. But as a general rule, deceitfulness or deception is evil that masquerades itself as good. We've got a lot of things going on in the world that we live in where evil is masquerading as good. I think one of the things that the church is going to have to overcome before Jesus comes back for us, or maybe a better way to say that is for us to be most effective in these last of the last days, is to find its voice. The church has to find its voice for these last days. Now, one of the things that's taking place, and I, I certainly realize that the changes that will be made instantly, or we might say overnight, when the church is raptured, is going to be hard for us to even imagine. But we are seeing some things that point to what things will be, or what things could be at least, during the tribulation. One of the things that we know of is that the Antichrist, in declaring himself as God, has a helper. And the Bible calls him the false prophet. Now, the false prophet won't really have much opposition 
once the church is gone. And I think we make a mistake, or at least I can say for myself, I've been guilty of this, is thinking that the false prophet's going to come up with a new religion. But religion is considered to be worship of God. And with the church gone, and everybody that's left is glad the church is gone, and the theories or the explanations that will be made by unsaved and ungodly people about the church being gone. Seems like it would be a wasted effort to come up with some way to worship God in whatever way they define God to be. We know the Antichrist declares himself as God at the midway point of the tribulation. But the things that we see taking place with this COVID vaccine is at least the beginning stages of science being the new religion of the world. And vaccinations being its holy sacrament. I'm not saying that this will continue because I don't know how things are going to go. And I can't make up my, my own opinion of it without God giving me some kind of insight. But if we were looking for the false prophet right now, Fauci's pretty close. <laughs> Now, one of the things I think is a problem for the church, finding its voice in these last days, is the fact that evil is masquerading as good. Folks, I'm not against vaccination. But I am against vaccinations or anything else being used to control people. But it makes it kind of difficult for the church to take a stand. Against vaccinations being forced on people. By all the people that are deceived by the so-called science. Or the claims of science. And I don't oppose anything that might save somebody's life. But the reality is there aren't too many studies that are showing that the vaccinations are saving anybody at all. Not only that, but there are other treatments that in any other time in this world's history 
would be considered miracle drugs. But instead, because of the spiritual condition of these last days, people are claiming science as a reason for withholding these drugs. I read an article the other day of a 74-year-old Vietnam veteran who contracted COVID and was in the hospital. And because of the hospital, this was a hospital in Texas, and I know a lot of you think that Texas is the promised land. <laughs> but they've got their own issues too. And no matter where you go, you're not gonna be able to outrun the things of the devil. So this hospital was issued a court order that the family fought for to get the hospital to treat this 74-year-old veteran with ivermectin, but they refused to do so, put him on a ventilator instead, and he died. Now, folks, what kind of deception is in play where a medical community who has access more readily than the rest of us would have to the claims and the benefits that other doctors and hospitals have found and unilaterally makes a decision to refuse the court order and resulting in the death of this individual. something that's masquerading as good is really evil. And I I want to say this the right way. I think that a majority of the church has trouble assigning the evil that is necessary to individuals. In an appropriate manner. I look at President Biden and I just feel sorry for the guy. But the decisions and the actions, the decisions he's making and the actions that he's taking identify my feeling sorry for him as the wrong approach. This Afghanistan thing, nobody leaves 
the amount of weaponry and the equipment that was left behind on, uh, by accident. To say that nobody thought about what would happen or nobody had any insight on what did take place before it happened, that's just stupid. And I'm not saying the people in charge were stupid to let it happen. The things that happened happened on purpose. There is no other explanation. The lowest private in the army would know that you don't leave your weapons behind for the enemy. To think that the CIA or the intelligence community, no matter how influenced they might be by the devil, but to say that the greatest influence community in the face of the earth, on the face of the earth, didn't consider the weapons left behind. That's just foolish. The idea that somebody just woke up one morning and thought, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with all this equipment? That's just foolish. Well, then if it wasn't done by accident, then we have to assign evil where it belongs. I don't relish the idea. But if the church doesn't speak up about the things that are going on around us, then we become participants to it. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. What shall we do to these things? Concerning these things. You know, Paul called people unsaved, rebellious. He identified what I think most of the church shies away from. I don't think I'm as strong about it as I need to be. My attitude, general attitude, is that a person's salvation is between them and God. And there are some scriptures where Jesus said, he warned against calling somebody, well, the translation seems to make it seem that if you're saying that somebody's unsaved and they're not, that you're in danger of hellfire. But that's not what the scripture really means. It means if you say that salvation is not available to someone, then you're in danger of hell. But folks, we've got people in governmental positions who claim to be devout Catholics 
but have for decades supported abortion in a tremendous measure. How do those things line up? It's hard to say that anybody would support abortion in this day and time without knowledge of what's going on and how abortions operate or take place. We're going to have to call the evil evil. We're going to have to call doers of evil doers of evil. And if we don't, then we allow dissension to take place where evil masquerades as good. First John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. He's not talking about the, the one that's called the antichrist, but he's saying the same work of the devil is in operation in the world around us and was so even in their, their case, their time. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. In other words, these are people that used to be part of the church. But they departed from that and went to do their own thing. Verse 20. But you have an ocean from the Holy One, and you know all things. Notice one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to show us when evil is masquerading as good. Isn't it funny that you never see good masquerading as evil? Post <laughs> these mass these vaccine passports are evil. Who would have thought on 9-11, 2001, who would have thought that 20 years from now, America would have equipped the organization that provided the terrorists that brought down those two towers in New York? Who could have imagined that? You remember what happened shortly after 9-11? You remember how everybody was united to go get those dirty so-and-sos that attacked us? Fast forward 20 years. Who would have imagined, who could have imagined And look how quickly things changed. 
that now 20 years down the road, we've got an administration that has just equipped the Taliban and other terrorist organizations with the finest weaponry in the world. Folks, I don't believe that's a political mistake. I believe that to you. I believe it's time to call evil evil. And notice that we have the Holy Ghost to help us. You have an unction from the Holy One to know all things. Now, the knowing all things he's talking about is the difference between people that are doing good, rightly dividing the truth, and those that are doing evil, wrongly dividing the truth, spreading deception and lies. Thank God for the Holy One that enables us to know all things. I believe it's time for righteous judgment. I believe it's time for the church to live in a way that we righteously judge things going on around us. That doesn't relieve us from our responsibility to pray for our leaders. Even knowing that the people that we're praying for would probably not change anything if Jesus himself appeared to them. We're not responsible for the outcome, but we are responsible for the right attitude and the actions of ourselves. We live in a day that nobody else has lived through. We live in a day that will experience things that nobody else has ever experienced. And it's so important, in my opinion, critical, for us to handle things well in these last days. Well, I've got a problem now. I don't know how to end this. <laughs> I'm inclined to just say, dip, 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 dip. that's all, folks. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your wonderful works to the children of men. We thank you for your presence and the foundation of your word. 
Father, you know our hearts. You know that we're not against anybody except those that oppose you. We remind ourselves of the weapons of our warfare, not carnal weapons, but spiritual weapons. Spiritual weapons that enable us to see and think clearly concerning the return of Jesus and the world just prior to that return. We pray for our leaders. We pray for our president. Father, I pray that you would give him an encounter with you so that he could see clearly. I know he has his own will. And I know that no matter what, his will determines what he will do, not our prayers. But Lord, he's on the edge of death. He's got one foot slipping into hell. And so I ask you to reveal yourself to him. I pray that you would do the same thing with other leaders, elected officials, bureaucrats, all those that are in authority, that you would show them the influence that they're operating under. show them a way of truth as an alternate course. Father, I pray for the church that you would enable us to find our voice. That you would enable us to lead your people godly and effective manner. Father, we pray for the rain, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Signs and wonders and miracles that bring about the precious fruit of the earth. We thank you, Father, for the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. We thank you for directing and guiding each and every one of us through our own particular situations with our jobs and the challenges that await us or face us that we might know the leading of the Holy Spirit about what to do and how to do it. Thanks for being with us.